Have you ever wondered how the separate threads of your life fit in to one big picture? How the individual moments of challenge and triumph connect to one another to form the great meaning of your life? I am Anna Mullins, your Life Story Editor, and I'm convinced that making sense of our deepest pain can help us understand our deepest purpose. In my speaker training program and on this podcast, I help people weave together those confusing, often shameful pieces of their past, revealing the life-changing lessons that create their profound new story. Welcome to Unapologetic Stories, where secrets are out and the truth is in. Welcome back, storytellers. We have a good one for you today, and it's a little outside the box for me and for this podcast, which makes it that much more special. We are talking to all my lower mainland friends mostly, but many across Canada and the US and maybe even across the world who are really trying to make sense of, dum-dum-dum, drum roll, the mortgage market and the housing market. It is a topic that comes up often in my own circle of friends and my peers and colleagues and with many people of many different ages, frankly, struggling to come to terms with whether this real estate boom is an opportunity or a risk. Now, some of you may know that I was a former corporate banker in a past life, so I do typically have my ear uh, to the ground on some of this stuff, but I'm also, more importantly, a homeowner. I'm a small business owner, and I'm trying to stay afloat like we all are and thrive while raising two young children. And so I think today's topic will connect for many of you out there who are just trying to do the same and don't quite have the time or the expertise to understand all the numbers and what's happening. So I'm going to bring on my guest. I'm so excited to have him here. He is Sean Francis. He is a partner and senior mortgage consultant at Bespoke Lending, who has their head office, I believe, in Burnaby. He'll clear that up for us later, I'm sure, in and around Vancouver. He is also a proud father and uh, husband, father too not husband to and father to, husband to Lita, my friend Lita, Mm. and father to two boys who I really consider like my nephews, the beautiful Ari and the beautiful Eli, who just turned one, I cannot believe that, one during a pandemic. Sean has been featured on Yahoo Finance, on Thrive, even NBC, and maybe more importantly, he, he is my own personal mortgage broker. And I feel so lucky to have him here today. Welcome, Sean Francis. Thank you for being here. And I will thank you so much for this gracious introduction. I'm blushing right now through this <laughs> Zoom meeting. <laughs> but no, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I consider it an honor. And it'd be my pleasure to kind of share with you a little bit about my insights or what I've come across in my years of brokering, um, you know, being a partner at Bespoke and, and my background as well as was an ex-banker. So I was with the Royal Bank since 2004. So I've come across... Uh, a lot of scenarios, I've seen the cycles that have come in and I've came across a lot of successful individuals who've been able to do well um, in all financial markets, all right? And I've taken bits and pieces of what they've done to do well, to grow their net worth and become successful. And I'm applying that into my own day-to-day activities. And I've been sharing that with my clients and I'm happy to kind of, you know, 
you know, share those nuggets of knowledge um, <clears throat> and also potential pitfalls that people have incurred along the way so we can help avoid that for your audience. That's amazing. I'm so grateful for that. So let's just start here. I am not from the Lower Mainland. You know that. I actually grew up in Kamloops where I met my husband. We eventually moved down to Langley. I started my job in banking and I ended up plunked actually in the same branch as you. So we met in banking in our old past lives jobs and our former jobs. Um, and you are actually one of the very uh, first friends I ever made here. Oh, well, thank you. I didn't really know that, but yes. That's, you kind of knew that. Now, I mean, you were at the wedding, so. And now we're lifelong friends now, so. Lifelong friends, absolutely. But talk to me a bit about your journey from the banking world and how you got to be the owner of your own brokerage firm. Like, that's a pretty good career blast. So what, just talk me through kind of that path. Well, well, um, you know, my time at uh, the World Bank, I look back on it fondly. And what, how I got started in banking, actually, was I, I was an SFU co-op student. So um, my background uh, undergrad was um, business and communications. And there was an internship where you can work for the bank for eight months. So I got hired on um, for an internship at the bank for eight months. And then after that, I came back to the bank and I worked part-time while I was going to school, finishing up my, my classes, my courses. <clears throat> so I would end up working at the bank um, Friday, Saturday, and Monday. So it was probably one of the best part-time jobs you can get as a student, right? Because most kids would work in some sort of fast food restaurant. But here I was working in the offices as an account manager, you know, meeting, you know, top-notch clients and rubbing shoulders with financial planners and mortgage specialists and branch managers and going to some meetings. And it was really great to like, kind of like marry my um, classroom and learning with, you know, day-to-day -day or applying day-to-day -day real life uh, knowledge. So that was my initial structure. And I was really happy to be part of Lower Bank because RBC has a largest market share when it comes to the banking, uh, hard, largest amount of customers. And it, came, it comes with a certain kind of name with it. And so I was able to be able to automatically put that on my resume and earn the right to kind of work with a lot of top-notch professionals, such as other realtors and small business owners. Um, and then I was able to move up through the ranks in the banking world from account manager, senior account manager, business account manager, um, then mortgage specialist. So I had various right. roles, right? And from there, I would always kind of like learn different, uh, uh, different uh, skills within these roles. And then finally, um, you know, when I felt that the ceiling was hit and for myself at the bank, I then transitioned into um, a business development role within the mortgage broker space and then ultimately becoming a mortgage broker for another office and then partnering up with my business partners and starting my own office as I wanted to continue to evolve as a person and my goals, right? And so that's kind of my journey, right? And every single role that I did kind of has led me to be where I am right now, right? Because knowledge and learning is incremental. And a lot of the stuff that you are able to be able to learn comes from experience by doing, right? There's a lot of stuff that you can learn in a textbook and you feel like you're ready, but it's, you have to sometimes, and what I'm learning now, because I'm also a mentor for some of the, the newer brokers in the office, is I try to encourage them to get as much experience by doing, right? Um, there's different ways of learning, by, such as by, um, you know, textbook learning or, you know, simulations, right? But once you're like dropped, your feet are dropped into the fire, that is the best on the learn, on the job 
uh, learning that you can ever do, right? Because, you know, you're being held accountable, right? Because there's consequences for your missteps and whatnot. Right. So then you take the role, you take the outcomes a lot more serious. So um, that's what was really fantastic because I was constantly on the raw, on the job training, you know, and if you want to get into specifics, you know, can give us an example of what that would mean. So for example, when I was at the bank and I was a business account manager, I was just tasked with bringing new business, small business clients into the branch. How would I have done that? Well, we get on the phone, right? And we dial the existing database of clients within the branch network. And we're looking for opportunities to add value to those small business people. A lot of small business people are very busy. They only have one or two staff members and they have to wear a lot of hats, right? And so if you can find cash management solutions, you know, um, where they can be able to, to kind of like focus in on their business, right? Such as helping them to use online banking or helping them to order business expense cards for them and their employees so they can, right. they can segregate the expenses. That in itself will save them a lot of time and then they can be able to uh, provide that to their accountant, right? And so when you start doing that and then you help them make their lives easier, they're going to want to work with you. They trust you. They respect your opinion and they're going to bring more business to you. And so how that helped me become a mortgage broker is when I'm on the phone with clients and trying to like work with my clients who are new to the mortgage industry, I was able to kind of um, add value, find ways to help them understand the mortgage process or make their lives easier and how I can obtain the documents from them and, you know, move them along. Right. So hmm. everything, like I said, kind of rolls into, you know, um, you know, where, where we need to be. Right. Yeah. Um, they, they say a couple things that are, uh, the most stressful experiences in this world is having a baby, um, death, getting married, buying a home. Right. Oh. So those are some of the biggest, uh, life, life milestones that create a lot of anxiety and being a mortgage broker, if you can be calm and cool under pressure and add value and make the, the process seamless for clients, then you've, you know, you've basically created an experience that they will appreciate for. Oh, I love that you've touched on all of this. And I wanted to go through kind of your backstory a little bit because it's important. I mean, again, it just exactly what you have highlighted here is talking about mortgages and talking about the housing market and buying a home and having people kind of like leaf through all of your personal financial details and determine whether or not this is a risk or an opportunity is really difficult and it's full of anxiety for people. It is, as you mentioned, it's a high anxiety space. And to have somebody who's kind of moved through the space for many, many, many years and been at all facets of the business, I think is exactly why I wanted to have you here because your perspective is of course so experienced, but also so unique. And you can see this from all different angles, but also as a homeowner yourself in the lower mainland, who's raising a family and moving through some of these anxious decisions as well. So let's actually, let's just get literally right into it. I've got so many questions for you, but I want to kind of, <laughs> I don't even know how to frame this question. I want to say, talk to me about the current market, but what I just want to say is like the word insane comes to mind here. It's like, I'm watching what the housing market is doing. I'm watching real estate prices skyrocket. I am hearing from friends in the realtor world that there are multiple offers. Things are selling way over market. Like just talk to me about the insanity right now. Maybe you wouldn't call it insanity, but it feels like 
that for most people? Well, it definitely is from, it is, it's a, it's a very busy time right now, right? And, you know, if I were to put my assessment on the whole thing is what I noticed was the pandemic hit, hurt, uh, hit March last year. And in every year, in every cycle, there's a certain segment of the population that needs to buy and sell homes for certain reasons. The cyclical, because of the family dynamics, right? To, uh, to boyfriend and girlfriend, they bought a house or a condo and they have a baby in the way, they need more space. Parents are downsizing. They need to live with the kids in the basement. And so every year that goes by, there's a certain amount of people that need to upsize to a bigger home. There's a certain amount of people that need to downsize to a smaller home because they're retiring, right? That was put on pause for several months last year. From March to May, we were in a basically lockdown situation. So a lot of people that were looking to make that move or those transitions basically put that on hold, right? Ah, okay. So that kind of led to less transactions. Then the government in response to coronavirus wanted to not let the, lock, the economy lock up, right? So what they did is they, they wanted to stimulate the economy. And how do you stimulate the economy? They kept interest rates low. So once the pandemic was, was kind of like, you know, developing in, in around March, they slashed the prime lending rate. So all people that had variable rate mortgages started getting cheaper variable rate mortgages, right? And then with, in relation to that, the bond market also was adjusted because they started, they, started, um, they started with the bonds as well too. So what ended up happening is you started seeing uh, five-year fixed rates decreasing as well too because the government was getting involved as well with the bond market. And that was also leading to five-year fixed rates becoming uh, significantly lower compared to where they were at that at the time before, right? Right, or and bond or, rates, if I remember, and maybe clear this up for me, because I'm sure I'm pulling this from a very old memory, but bond rates and mortgage rates and fixed mortgage rates often work in contrast yeah, to one another. Correct, correct, right? So, so when one goes down, one goes up and vice versa, right? And right. so as the bond rate started um, uh, going up, then you started seeing the fixed rate started going down, right? And so then what was happening is you were seeing variable rates, going lower and fixed rates on the on the on the mortgages going lower and variable and fixed rates are not necessarily tied but it looks like they were tied to, uh, at this point because they were kind of dropping at the same time right okay um and so basically all that what i'm trying to say is money became cheap for mortgages and on top of it people were not spending their disposable income on any vacations or anything like that so people who are living in townhouses and condos were trying to get out of it, right? Or getting out of those, they're confined in their small spaces. Mm. And with the new dynamics of work from home, a lot of people who were wanting to be closer to downtown Vancouver or closer to like the, to the west of the lower mainland, they started moving closer to the east because they were able to get houses uh, cheaper. They were able to move from a condo or a townhouse because they could work from home. And then they started seeing, well, if I can work from home and I can get a house with a backyard, um, then, you know, let's kind of look at that. Right. And so that's kind of what contributed to right. start seeing this run on 
single detached homes going over $200,000 over asking, right? So you're seeing single detached homes this time last year being whatever $1.1 million going for 1.3, 1.35. And you're well, wondering, well, why? Well, people wanted to get into the market. The rates were low. They were doing the calculations on what their monthly payment would be. They had disposable income that could cover it. And they made the decision that I can afford these payments, right? Um, the stress test, which, 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 which limits how much mortgage you can qualify based on a predetermined stress test number, which was, which is 4.79 and whatever you can qualify for with your income that doesn't necessarily rest that that hasn't changed from this time last year, mm-hmm. but people's perception on their ability or comfort level of what their monthly payments will be and how much they can afford changed in my opinion, because they felt that they can afford the payments because they were not dedicating their money into other um, uh, avenues, right? Be it vacations and whatnot, right? So um, okay. even though the banks were not lending people out any more money than what they would normally lend out, people were marginally getting uh, more bigger mortgages because they were in their minds more comfortable with the payment. And, and hence they were being more aggressive with offers because they wanted these homes. Now that's my wow. assessment of the okay. whole situation, right? I, and I think that's spot on. I feel so actually, you've taught me so much in just literally this last three minutes. Uh, Cause I've been trying to make sense of it myself of like, what is it that really spurs this on? And of course we think of things like the cheaper uh, mortgage rates and stuff that seems like the obvious, but you're exactly right. I think it's this blend of people are spending more time at home and therefore home becomes so much more important. So you're willing to make different decisions about your home and what that actually looks like, plus the lower mortgage rates, plus, I mean, all these other factors that you mentioned as well. Uh, the, the question that comes to mind right away, and I'm sure the listeners are thinking this too, as they're hearing this conversation, um, and I'm going to go on a tangent for a quick second before I ask it, you and I worked together in the banking world through the 2008-2009 recession and the housing bubble burst and all of that stuff that was happening, all of those, the foreclosures. And we witnessed a lot, you and I, I'm sure, I'm sure lots of people in the industry did. There are probably people out there, this is the segue to my question, that are thinking, is this going to happen again? We have cheap mortgage rates. People are purchasing homes at 200000 over the asking price. What will happen when rates go up? Is there truth to the fact that we are going to have another bubble burst? Will people not be able to afford these payments that they did their kind of their own personal stress tests on and figured out what they could afford? What do you suppose may happen here? Oh, very good questions. And, and, you know, I've put some thought into it. So this is kind of, once again, my theory and thoughts on it. Um, The crisis that occurred in 2008 was started in the U.S. global crisis and it leaked into around the, you know, the world in Canada. But Canada fared a lot differently than how the U.S. fared, right? Canada in 2008 fared better than the U.S. is because the, the lending criteria and structure was a little bit more stringent than the United States. So I don't have the stats on my fingertips, right? But we did relatively well when it came to, um, you know, um, foreclosures and whatnot uh, in the crisis, the global crisis, because the the banking standards for to get qualified for our mortgages was in place and strict, right? And then, you know, that's what happened at that time. And then, the, um, and then moving along to right now, the criteria to get qualified for a mortgage in 2021 is the same criteria as it was 2020, 2019, right? 
they implemented the stress test, which is a qualifying rate of 4.79. That is not what the rate the client gets for a mortgage, but that is what the client has to be prepared to service to get qualified for a mortgage. Okay. So pause there. So just so that I can clarify that for anybody who doesn't understand. So what that means is when you as a mortgage broker are putting an application through the system, you're actually presuming that their interest rate will be 4.79, even though their eventual interest rate might be one point something or two point something or even three point something, you're qualifying them at a higher rate in order for them so that you've got some window of- A buffer. That's absolutely correct, right? So- that was a strategic move that the, the, the government enacted in 2016, the end of 2016. Oh, okay. All the stress tests, right? And that was a big deal for a lot of people because their purchasing power decreased back in 2016, end of 16, early 2017. So what people could qualify for a mortgage was kind of capped, right? And so that has been in existence from 2017 to now. So people are not necessarily getting more indebted than they were in any time before, right? Okay, so that's time. something to kind of like put out to the audiences. The next thing that I wanted to kind of highlight is the factors that which will lead to what foreclosures is, because is, is, if interest rates re- increase on the fixed or the variable side, right? People has already made that assumption based on the stress test that they can afford the payments, right? So why would you see a tumbling of values is based on the people at a mass, like some sort of like catastrophic, uh, yeah, catastrophic event happening, such as um, major earthquake or something to that effect that just decimates the general population, right? Um, you know, so that is what would be the risk. But the the risk of people not being able to afford the payments is what would happen is if they would just sell the house, right? So you list it, you can't make your payments. You list at the house. And then you would say you would sell it. So if you had a mass number of people all for whatever reason not being able to pay and they all were to sell their homes, what happens is it would take 90 days for foreclosures to, to occur. And then what would happen is if you list it, you would have to have somebody that would come in there and buy it for less than what the market is, right? So if you list it, then people will come in and buy it. So why would the price drop automatically if you list it and you sell it, right? Now, why I believe prices are basically going to be here it is and or increase is we are slated to have a 400,000 immigrants coming to Canada. So if you have new immigrants coming to Canada, that means the population will be increasing and we have less supply than demand. We have a lot less homes for people right now and a lot more active buyers. You have a pool of clients to, to buy homes who are renters and you have a pool of people who are professionals who are immigrants that are coming that want to buy homes. So therefore, if you are distressed and you decide decide to sell your home, then you're going to have this pool of, of, of a supply of people that are going to buy the house. So then the, the house values are not going to fall, right? The only reason why a price of a house would fall is if you list it and no one else is buying it. And then you're you're forced to, to lower the price to ensure that someone buys it. But if you list it, there's going to be 10 people waiting to snatch up that property. Right. right? Okay. Okay. So, and I think this is like, this is such good information, Sean. I'm so glad that I had you on because I just know I can hear the listeners right now being like having aha moments all over the place. Um, 
The other thing I think that was different back then, maybe correct me if I'm wrong as well. Again, you're kind of talking about these government, this legislation and policies that come in around mortgage lending and creating this stress test in 2016 and 17 that didn't exist back in 2008 and 2009. The other thing I believe, if I remember correctly, that did not exist is we used to see lending up to 90 or 95 or a hundred percent even of the loan to value rate or the value of the actual home where now that doesn't necessarily exist. There is a different level of down payment that needs to be put on the purchase of a home to avoid the risk of being over mortgaged. I'm doing air quotes here. Well, um, yes and no. So that's correct what you're saying. There's different criteria. There's what's called conventional mortgages and there's high ratio mortgages, right? Conventional mortgages are 20% down or more, right? And conventional or high ratio mortgages are mortgages where you put down 5% down, 10% down, 15% down, right? Um, So that's what's called a high ratio mortgage. And so the criteria is you can still buy a house with 5% down or 10% down as long as you, as long as you debt service or qualify right? The standards to qualify at 5% down is a little bit more difficult to qualify than, than at 20% down because at 20% down, you can do an amortization of 30 years versus a payment of uh, down payment of 5% down. Your max amortization is 25 years. And oh, that five-year difference will then make the difference in terms of what your monthly payment is. And with a smaller monthly payment, you can qualify for a larger mortgage. Okay, got it. So the amortization, for those that don't know, is the length of years that your mortgage is stretched out for. So the longer that's stretched out for, the lower your monthly payment. The shorter it is, of course, the higher your monthly payment. And you would have to qualify again, not only on the stress test if you had a lower down payment, but also on on a lower amortization or aka a higher monthly payment as well. That's correct. And then on top of it, and not to get too technical for people, is on top of it, you can get like depending on your how the strength in your file exceptions to stretch the guidelines for approval. So, for example, you know, uh, for banking, twenty percent down. The ratios for bank approval is no more than thirty nine percent of your household income can go to mortgage debt financing, and then no more than forty four percent of your total financial um, picture, which is mortgage debt property taxes, you know, student loans can go to mortgage finance, uh, go to debt, no more than 44. However, if you do 25, 20% down, you can potentially stretch that out slightly higher than the government guidelines on strong files, because there's a little bit more um, autonomy because you're just dealing with the banks and their criteria. So your money goes further at 20% down versus 5% down because you can stretch out the guidelines, right? Especially if you have good credit, some savings, you can mitigate higher ratios. But right. when you come to a deal with 5% down or 20, 10% down, the guidelines is no more than 39 and then 44. And it's a hard number. There's no exceptions past 39%. There's oh. nothing, right? At 44%, you're not even 44.01. It's, it's, just, it's a hard cap. So that's why it's challenging for people that with less than 20% down because there's a lot, if you have, for example, a student loan or a car payment of $600, that will greatly impact your ability to get qualified for a mortgage because you're, you're, you're looking at a target um, ratio that's tight to begin with. And you're looking at a, a down payment of, of smaller down payment and an amortization of 25 years. So that's why it's a lot, it's very important for first time home buyers or people who are looking to get into the housing market 
they got to manage their credit and what they want to apply for in terms of like car loans. You should, it's better to get approved for your mortgage and qualified and have a mortgage on your uh, credit bureau and then get your car with this large payment, then get your car with the payment first, then get your mortgage. Cause it's a lot difficult, a lot more challenging to get qualified for a mortgage than to get qualified for a car loan, the car dealership. Mm, such good advice. Yes. Okay. So that's for new homeowners. Do you have any advice for people that are currently living in their homes, watching this? This is me asking a question for myself and my husband, as you can see in, in parentheses here. We've been living in our home 10 years. We're starting to see that we have to do a lot of renovations. Like, do we take out, you know, a line of credit against the home? What do we do with the renovations? Is it worth selling? We have all of these questions. Do you just kind of, this is so many questions all packed into one, but any advice for just people in their home currently who are looking possibly to upgrade is now the time? Would you say now is the time or would you say hold off a little bit, maybe wait because there might be a risk of not finding anything on the other end. If you so, b- before I answer your question, I just wanted to finish up a, a one more point about okay. people who are hesitant about this market and what does it mean for them. And, um, you know, I just wanted to highlight, you know, the immigrant um, factor of new immigrants coming and the fact that there's a, a, a pool of people who are currently renting that wanting into the housing market. So that is a reason to, for why I believe prices are going to be relatively firm and if not increase. And the other thing is, what happens if rates go higher? What happens if there's another downturn in the economy? You know, and I'm not trying to say to come work with Sean and get a mortgage rate, but I, <laughs> I've already, I've already done that. So <laughs> <laughs> nice plug. thank you very much. We'll take that. <laughs> but like, if you're getting more money at less than 2%, there's some car loans that you're not even getting less than 2%, right? Get that money working for you. And what that would mean is I would encourage people to, to get a refinance and use that to buy potentially another investment property that whatever they can afford or invest it back into their home because that's a good use of the money. Nothing extravagant like, I don't know, just like, you know, putting gold plated kitchens, right? But adding value to a, a older home by doing the floors or um, finishing the basement where you can get renters in the basement suite to cash flow your home, right? Or, you know, redoing the kitchen because that would add value to the home. You get to enjoy it. And then if and when you want to sell in the future, the lifestyle now in 2021 is about payments, right? And what can I afford within my monthly payments, not paying them more down to a zero balance, right? Got it. Okay. Uh, this is fantastic. And what I, I'm going to have you kind of, I think I've already answered the question I posed it at the top is like, is this market an opportunity or risk? What I'm hearing is like, this is an opportunity. If kind of managed well, and in obviously your own comfort level, this market is definitely, you would say an opportunity for people. I definitely do think so. Um, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, some people would say the naysayers would say the markets, uh, um, you know, there's a bubble, we're going to sit in the sidelines and wait, right? That's what a lot of people said three years ago. A lot of people said in, you know, in 2000, in the 2000s, right? Wow. So you just got to like, you know, do what you're comfortable with. But over the long run, when you buy real estate and hold, you're going to come out ahead. Right. And yeah. so don't try to flip it, buy it and flip it, but you can buy it with the idea to flip it if there's enough that you hit the number that you want. But long term, 
there's a lot of value in you know buying it and holding it for the long term because that way you're mitigating the small potential fluctuations that sometimes happen in the market, right? Right. Okay. So think about it as a long-term investment and not a short-term, and you're probably eliminating most of that risk. If correct, there- right? And then you you know when you do this, it's like what are my outs, right? I have a you bought a pre-sale condo, for example, with a business uh, with a family member or a business partner, and you know if the house condo when completed is worth a lot more than what I bought it for, I could maybe sell it on assignment and make some money, or I can buy it, I can complete on it, right? Have renters that live on it for a while that can help support the mortgage payments on it, right? Um, you know, so you when you do all these things, you got to find multiple. Um, you know, exit plans and strategies, right? Mm-hmm. You got to see, you know, you know, a, a wonderful, you know, one of the great Canadian greats is Wayne Gretzky. And Wayne Gretzky was a phenomenal scorer, right? And they said to him, you know, what was your secret to being so successful? And, uh, you know, don't quote me on this, but he said something to the effect of, I would skate to where the puck was going to be, go- where the puck was going versus where the puck was currently. So he was making moves in anticipation of where he wanted to be and where he wanted to like lead the pocket to score. And that's how you have to start thinking of making your moves in the real estate market. You don't react to what the situation is right now. You react to where you want to be right now, or where things are heading. Right? right. And so the, you know, for example, the um, single family homes have been very hot. Right. And that's a very clustered market right now. So if I was looking for opportunities to, to get into the market, I would look into the, you know, even the townhouses are hot now, right? Like when the market was hot, very hot in March, it was all about single family homes. And now they've kind of shifted now from single family homes slightly to townhouses. So perhaps the opportunity lies in, you know, further east, sorry, so further west um, homes, right? Because there's more value or uh, more uh, easier to get in to those price points, right? single family homes and potentially rental property uh, uh, condos or whatnot, right? Downtown or condos in the Fraser Valley, right? Because right now, no one wants to be downtown because of the coronavirus, but this is Vancouver we're talking about and coronavirus will be behind us, you know, hopefully this time next year or even sooner, who knows? But Vancouver is a vibrant city and people are gonna come back, right? Amazon has its headquarters there. And it's going to be a busy area, right? And so if sure. you can get a deal with to buy a condo in Vancouver, now's the time to do that, right? Yeah. Maybe not a deal right now in a single family home, right? But if you have a single family home right now, now's the time to refinance, sit on that money, get a line of credit, sit on it, pull the equity out, and then get yourself in the position to qualify to buy that condo um, now or in the future, right? So those are all just small ideas that I want to kind of put out there, right? They don't be discouraged, right? There's opportunities in every type of market for you to get ahead, right? But you just have to be strategic on what you want to do. I love that. I love that. Okay. I want to kind of pivot a little bit into the role of a broker and what that looks like. But before I do that, I feel like there's one question that will be lingering in, I know the minds of the audience potentially, Talk to us about the difference, and we're talking about risk here, between a fixed rate mortgage and a variable rate, and if there is a benefit to going variable or not. That's the time-honored question, fixed versus variable, right? 
Um, you know, ultimately what I say to my clients when they ask me that question is, is well, ultimately, what are you comfortable with, right? What keeps you up at night, right? Because I can, I can explain to clients the benefits of the variable and it all makes sense for them and their family. But if they are of a mindset that they don't like the uncertainty that the variable rate gives them, then fix is ultimately what they should be doing, right? So what so is the uncertainty? When you say the uncertainty of a variable rate, now, again, I'm going to dig into like my prior knowledge here and you're going to correct me, which is why you're here. But as far as I understood it, the fixed rate, of course, is a fixed rate. It's just going to be the same for your term. So whether that's four years or five years, your rate, which is, let's say, 2.5, will be 2.5 no matter what. And therefore, your payments are also fixed and the amount of interest in principal going into each payment is predictable. You're gonna know what that is at every month. You can actually print out a report and see how much goes to principal, how much goes to interest. Now with a variable rate, the rate itself is linked then to that prime lending rate, that national prime lending rate. And therefore your payment is still fixed, but the amount toward principal and interest fluctuates up and down, is that correct? Uh, you're, that's correct. And yeah. everything you're correct. One of the things I just wanted to highlight with you're talking about the variable is the, the, what goes to principal and interest fluctuates on variable with some lenders. And then with other lenders, if the prime rate goes up or down, the payment actually changes. The payment actually, okay. So this is what I was trying to get at is there is actually a risk that your monthly payment could change, but the history shows that there's obviously, it, it's kind of a good risk to take, but yeah. it's a risk. So, so some lenders, for example, I'm not gonna name names, but some lenders, if the prime lending rate goes up or down, the payment stays the same for variable. Got it. So what goes to principal, what goes to interest will adjust and therefore the amortization will be affected. So for example, if Just you start off- longer with, to pay it off, got it. Right, or if the prime rate goes lower, then you will be more aggressive with your payments, right? Uh, so for example, if you have a five-year variable and it starts off with a 30-year amortization, after five years, it should go down to 25 years. If you have a situation where the prime, the prime lending rate drops, your potentially payments will still stay the same, but what will happen, more money will go to principal. So then instead of going from 30 years to 25 years, it might go from 30 years to 23 years. Got right. it. And you're cutting time off your mortgage, which means less interest paid overall. So some lenders have it set up so that your payment never changes. It just shifts the amortization. But you say there are obviously lenders out there where it will or might actually affect the payment as well. And that's the risk you're talking about. For that's people. the psychological risk because some people just don't like the uncertainty of the payments going up because there are some lenders, if you're in a 30 year to go to 20 to 25 year and it's the payments change, because of the prime lending rate, then all of a sudden their monthly payments that was, let's just say, uh, 2,500 might jump up to 2,600. So that is for some people unacceptable and they can't handle that. To put it into context, um, the math is for every $100,000 uh, of mortgage money, and if the prime lending rate moves up 25 basis points, the, the math is a payment increase of $13, right? God, okay, that's really good to know. And so like it, historically then for prime rate to actually move 0.25 or 25 basis points, how often does that actually occur? So you would have to kind of go to the charts and see it, right? But it, it does, it has happened, right? For example, um, you know, I'm putting me on the spot now in terms of what, what word prime was before, right? But prime went from 2.95 to 2.45. So it dropped 50 basis points okay. since last year, right? So it went down. 
So people save, you know, 0. 0.50 on their mortgage payment, which is pretty good, right? Right. Um, exactly, right? And so there's time though, the Bank of Canada has ratcheted up the prime lending rate, right? And they were starting, they did that, I think, it, don't quote me on it, but they did that, I think it was like two years ago or something like that. So they went up 25 basis points and another 25 basis points, right? Um, so it does happen, right? But they're not going to move it up too aggressively because it's just going to create too much havoc for people. But it's, you know, there's talk of the them potentially moving it up by the end of this year, right? Or early next year. Mm-hmm. But that's the reality of a situation. And there's lenders, you know, come talk to me and I can point you to the direction of lenders that don't actually change the payment despite the prime rate moving, right? Right. Up or so down, you get kind right? of the best of both worlds in a sense. I mean, if you're willing to risk the amortization, you may actually benefit from uh, the prime lending rate kind of going down and being able to chunk more away at the principal balance correct. of your mortgage if you're That's correct. To. Yeah. So, you know, stats show if you chose variable you're better off 80% of the time over the life of the mortgage. So that's how it is, right? So that's how the stats say. But at the end of the day, it's not about what the stats is, it's what people are comfortable with, right? But, you know, I do want to highlight, it's not just what payments changing with variable that makes people that's value and variable, right? I want to also highlight the fact that if you choose fixed and variable, there's penalties to get out your mortgage any uh, to get out your mortgage earlier than your your committed five year agreement, for example, with either so, option, um, there's yes, there's a penalty, right? So if you choose a five year fixed, and for example, let's just say it's a five hundred thousand dollar mortgage, right? To get out of that mortgage, it's you know you'll deal with what's called IRD, interest rate differential, right? And IRD could be potentially very punishing for people, right? So I've seen people right now on a half million dollar mortgage, IRD turning out to be approximately $20,000, right? 4% of the mortgage amount. And every bank calculates their IRD slightly different. So there's no hard and fast rule to figure out what IRD is unless you talk to the bank directly and they'll give you the breakdown. But as a general rule of thumb, IRD be prepared to prepare for a penalty if it's a fixed of a potentially three to 4% of the size of the mortgage. That's just a rough number. Now, if you chose a variable, the penalty to get out of your variable rate mortgage always guaranteed is three months interest. Oh. So that is why not only should you be concerned about, okay, what my payments are, but if I need to get out of this mortgage, what is my penalty to get out of it? Because if you have a million dollar mortgage or a half million dollar mortgage, 4% of a million dollars is just $40,000. 4% of half a million dollars is $20,000 versus going variable. The, the penalty on a million dollar mortgage will be no more than $3,500 to $4,500. This, oh, this is like a big, huge, I, I've never heard this. I mean, I've heard most, obviously from my background, I know kind of most of what you're saying here, but I've never heard that before. So it actually does affect, okay, so here's where, this is a perfect flip and segue. This is a perfect segue here into talking about relationships with brokers, because we have talked about variable, we've talked about fixed, we've talked about high ratio, conventional, IRDs, interest payments, lending rates, prime lending rates, bond rates. We've talked about all these things. This is very confusing and no wonder people have anxiety around purchasing a home or refining a home, refinancing or getting a credit line against their home. Um, Perfect segue into, holy moly, we probably all need a Sean Francis in our lives. We need a relationship with a mortgage broker, but I'm going to just ask the question, 
because you and I, as I said, we sort of set this up at the beginning. I've known you since I moved here and you're now my broker, but you're also my friend and your children are just like little loves of my life. And I love your wife. I would marry her myself if I could, if she was still on the market. I truly, truly think relationships are really the heart of most businesses, networking and relationships. Um, The power of relationships and the power of using a broker like yourself why would you say um, that it's important to use a broker and not somebody kind of walk into their bank and just go to their banker and say, give me the best mortgage rate? What is the benefit of working with somebody like you in bespoke lending? Well, that's a very good um, question, Anna. Um, And, you know, back in the day, people felt comfortable with the brand of the bank, right? You know, they know me at the bank and They'll take care of me and I could just walk in there. The branch manager shakes my hand and the mortgage gets approved, right? Now in 2021, over the last five years, the level of compliance and uh, rules and and documentation has made it so stringent. The old way of banking with just knowing who, who, who the client is and just trusting them is gone, right? And it's very complex to, to get qualified for a mortgage. And the more properties that you own, the more documents that are required. And a lot of people are self-employed and they have multiple jobs and you have to be able to verify the income that way. So it's, it's, it's a complicated process just to start with. And you need someone that has a lot of experience under their belt so they can be an advocate for you, the clients, right? And when I, as a broker, work for a client, uh, I work for the client in their best interest. I don't work for the bank. And that's a really big um, distinction because the policies that don't apply to my client that we want to work with on that particular transaction, if it doesn't apply to that client, that bank is out and we move on to the new bank, right? Versus that client trying to work with one single bank and we're trying to put a round peg into a square hole, right? It just doesn't, doesn't work, right? Because, you know, you've got more, you have like eight properties and the bank's policy is five properties. Well, then, then we're done and we can't even work together, right? Or the client is self-employed less than two years and they walk into the bank, the bank goes, well, you have to be self-employed for two years and we can't work together. And it's really demoralizing and frustrating for clients that who are ready to make this transition and they get knocked down, right? And so with a broker, you want to tell your story once, right? I'm an advocate for you and I will gather your documents and the other colleagues within the broker industry will do the same thing. We gather your documents, we understand your situation and then we search out a rate and solution that's tailored made to your situation, right? That's the name of our company. It's called Bespoke Lending Solutions. Tailor-made solutions, made for the client's unique needs, right? And so that's the whole thing. I've always wondered why you're called bespoke. So say that again, tailor-made solutions. Tailor-made solutions customized for your unique financial needs, right? I love it. It's it's a play on words because as you know, Anna, I like my suits, right? My my business partners are the same way, right? We, We like to present a professional image and um, bespoke is that, right? So we, uh, professional image, professional knowledge, right? And we're advocates for our client, right? So uh, as a broker, you know, it's a lot more challenging to get a client 
versus the bank because the banks might have the clients day-to-day banking and they've known each other for 10 years. But meanwhile, as a broker, they might have not worked with me one-on-one before. Who is Sean Francis? Who is bespoke, right? But the, the market has moved where clients are looking for the lowest rate possible because mortgages are a commodity. But not only do they want the lowest rate possible, but they need to have the best rate possible for their situation. And that's like a big distinction, right? Because not everyone qualifies for, quote unquote, the lowest rate, because once again, we talked about it, you're self-employed, your credit score is bruised slightly, or, um, you know, you're buying a rental versus a primary home, right? Or your property is outside of a geographical area where there's exceptions to loan to value, right? So there's a lot of um, a lot of factors that go into it and that bespoke and uh, what a broker will do is we will gather the file, look at it and then marry the details on the file to the correct lender at the lowest rate possible. And we do all that behind the scenes. Right. And so you know, we just simplify the whole process and all the clients need to do is send the docs, do the online application and then give us the background and we'll take it from there. Right. And we'll do all the, all the heavy work. And my experience right now is the branches are overworked, right? You know, when coronavirus occurred, a lot of the bank systems, and I'm sure they caught up to it now, they weren't meant to go mobile. They weren't meant to go virtual, right? And so, you know, um, they were, you know, some banks were caught flat-footed. Some banks were able to adapt quite quickly because they had the resources to do it. So, but brokers, we've been operating from remote from the beginning, right? Because a lot of the brokers don't have physical office. Bespoke, we're very fortunate because we do have a physical office and we also work remotely. So we are the best of both worlds. So a client are able to work with us seamless. We can connect with them via Zoom or collect on them on the phone. We have a mobile app where they can figure out payments on the mobile app. Uh, they can do the online application. And then that way they are selling our stories once and then we can get it done. And then if we can pivot, if it doesn't work with whatever lender. So people see a lot of value in that. And we give them peace of mind knowing that if it's not going to work, it's going to work with another lender. And to be honest, the realtors love that because the realtors are, are invested in having the clients have an approval and without, you know, complexities, because right now in this market, you know, they can't afford to have four or five days with subject removal. And then after that, they had to get extensions because, you know, the whole one bank was taking the full five days to figure it out. And then it still wasn't a fit. Right. And then you got to find a new bank. Right. Whereas a broker, we have multiple relationships and we can run the file by the different banks right away. So um, it just gets, it's just a lot cleaner process. I love this. And I love just knowing, I think this helps people too, is, is having that trusting relationship with somebody whose best interest is theirs. I think I phrased that wrong, but who's you have their best interest at heart and versus an individual institution that you feel married to, or that you're actually working for as we were at one point, And that would be your only loyalty, but your loyalty really is to the client. Now, where can people find you? What's your handle on Instagram? Where can they find you online if they want? So, you know, the website is uh, bespoke lending solutions.com. So www.bespoke, B-E-S-P-O-K-E lending, L-E-N-D-I-N-G.com. Uh, however, if you ever want to get a hold of me on Instagram, um, my handle is um, Sean Francis. Right? Perfect. And I'll put that in our show notes as well. So people can go and click on there and follow you and find you and reach out to you if they have any more questions. John, I'm so grateful you're here. And I know that if they go and visit your profile, they're going to find some links to other advice that you've given in the past, one of which, which I want to kind of end on today 
is that you have created these seven core competencies of like being a great mortgage broker. And you are that, you are that. I've worked with you personally. Um, but one of them is time management. There's referral building, uh, marketing and promoting, demonstrating your ethics, uh, investing in yourself and your business, lead generation. And finally, the one I wanted to end on today, exhibiting passion, which I think it's very clear. And I'm sure the audience will agree. Uh, you have passion in spades for this work and what you do. You've been in this industry, I think you mentioned, so over 17 years, going on 17 years in banking and finance in this industry. Your eyes are all over this market. And I will firmly attest to the fact that you are a dream to work with. And I say that as a friend, but also as a former banker and somebody who really takes this stuff seriously. So thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, uh, Anna. And yeah, like, you know, you've kind of touched on something that's really important, regardless if you choose myself as your mortgage broker or your family doctor or your lawyer or your accountant, you should feel like this person cares about my situation and feel you should have an interview as much as, you know, um, we are interviewing the clients, they're interviewing us because it's like a, it's a, it's a mutual beneficial relationship, right? We're providing a service and, um, and then the clients have the, the right to, to choose who they want to work with. Right. And so when you're sitting down with the person you want to work with, do they, do they have passion? Do they demonstrate the ability to get the job done? Right. So that's kind of something that you should kind of like put in the back of your mind. And yeah, absolutely. You know, passionate people attract passionate results. Right. So you definitely want to work with people that you feel that are advocates for you. Right. And, and that's just something I love. I love being in the mortgage space and, and I love being a mentor to the team members in the office and as you be a, a mentor, you learn a lot more, right? And then you have a lot more to, to share with your clients because you're seeing a lot, right? So that's definitely um, a very correct uh, analysis of the situation. I love it. So if a mortgage or home ownership or second home ownership or refi or any question at all is part of your personal unapologetic story, reach out to Sean. Yeah, please oh. do. Please yeah. do. Thank you. Thanks, Sean. Thank you for joining this edit of the Unapologetic Stories podcast. If you're ready to share your truth and rewrite your personal life story, connect with me at unapologeticstories.com for all the details on speaker training, storytelling, and strategizing your way through this one big life. If you've enjoyed listening, we would love for you to leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast listening app or Apple Podcast. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Unapologetic Anna for new speaker training start dates. Until next time, stay brave, stay unapologetic, and keep bringing in your truth. <laughs>